Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. This month's program, entitled The Prodigal Professor, is sponsored by Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing and features the music of The Velveteen Band. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. Come with me and conquer time. Transmigration journeys expand your When last we saw our heroes, they were separated by a profound expanse of time and space. Though we have had frights in the past, they are but pale shades to the distance between the temporal explorers at this juncture. It has been two months since last we spoke, dear listeners, and the body of the professor withers daily, his skin has grown sallow, his cheeks sunken. Dr. Sage is, to be frank, not taking it well. Get in there, you bluttered son of a poxy milkmaid! The doctor spent a month blindly throwing herself into the past at the pitch E-flat. Her intention was to arrive in the first half of the year 1816, prior to the rack of the Medusa, and then, no matter where she was on the globe, take terrestrial transportation to Senegal, in hopes of meeting up with Erasmus. But though she visited 1815, 1817, 1820, and 1814, she did not succeed in landing at the correct point in time. This might have driven another woman into madness. The doctor, however, is made of sterner stuff. Unable to achieve success via one method, the doctor has turned attention to making further revisions to her equipment in hopes of retrieving her friend. certain that if I can elevate the amperage and concentrate it in narrow enough beam, I will be better able to pinpoint the accuracy. There, that should do it. Time for another test. I'm no galvanist, but won't a more concentrated beam of electricity create a more concentrated burns in the recipient before dispersal? Well, yes. That's why I've upgraded the Faraday suits as well. If I need to hit the body with a stronger electrical pulse, then I need the dispersal into nimbus state to be faster and more encompassing. My goodness. This is so much lighter. I'm trying something new, actually. Cloth of copper, woven from the thinnest strands of copper thread overlaid with a flexible copper mesh. 
the majority of the energy will disperse along the mesh, but with the increased amperage, I thought it wise to give a second layer of defense, hence the cloth of copper. So you're a weaver now, too. Uh, Don't be naive, Abigail. I commissioned a mill to create it. But how does the cloth hold together? Isn't copper brittle when spun too thin? The copper serves only as the weft of the weave. The warp is provided by a high-quality Indian cotton. Cotton itself has a small measure of conductivity, so the stability it provides will not impede the conductivity of the copper. Now, there's one last thing I need to do before I can test this new procedure. Climb onto the table for me, there's a dear. Dr. Sage. I've explained to you that I do not intend to transmigrate. I know that. I just need to calibrate the galvanistic trajectory for maximum dispersal, something I cannot do from a prone position. I shall be using your form for targeting only, I assure you. All right, then. We shall leave the laboratory now and check in on the professor who we last saw in the form of a 12-year-old boy, happily off to adventure alongside a charismatic English chap. As is the way of all true adventures, the romance, excitement, and discovery are often beset by discomfort, dislimnations, and disruptions. It is with regret, dear listeners, that I must inform you our professor is lost in the shifting sands of the Senegalese desert. The noble Duke of York, he had five thousand. It seems men. that Mr. James Carnet, from Brighton, England, late of Senegal, was more bluster than brilliance. Together, the two blundered from oasis to oasis, from tribe to tribe, never quite making it back to St. Louis and safety, but never quite ending in disaster and blessed death. In short, our professor has been captured in a web of incompetence so pernicious that he could not escape. Time passes slowly in the desert. Finally, after two months of wandering, the Englishman succumbed to misadventure. The result was a dead Englishman and a twelve-year-old professor stumbling blindly up one dune and down the next, searching for the succor of water or death. And when they were up, they were up. And when they were down, they were down. I wish I could tell you this ends well, but this is the tales of sage and savant, and death is a constant companion here. So perhaps we should look to a critical event that happened just a few weeks earlier, whilst the braggadocious Englishman yet lived, and the spirit of adventure still ran high. It was on a starlit night when the desert is transformed into a cosmic miracle. When the stars glitter in the sky so close you swear you could touch them, and when legends and myths walk freely across the crests of the sand. True to the pattern established early in their journeys, the professor bustled about the camp attending to chores whilst Mr. Carnet slept in an alcoholic stupor on his carpets in the tent. Erasmus didn't really mind. He had come to cherish his time alone under the stars. Hey there, old girl. What is it? It was a visitor, a single man dressed in robes and leading a well-loaded camel. Hello, the camp. Hello, welcome, stranger. Uh, Might I join your fire for the night? Welcome, friend. Come, uh, let me get some water for you and your animal. No need, no need. We have brought plenty of water of our own. Pardon me, but do I know you? 
I do not think so. This is my first journey through these parts. I do not recall meeting a freckle-faced British boy before. Wei Boyong? You know of me. Have you read my treatise on Dharmadatu, the realm of truth? No, I met you on the mountain, just after you awakened from taking the elixir. I was with my friend, the dog. Your friend is a dog? Well, yes. No, I'm... She was for that transmigration. Oh, it's, it's complicated. Transmigration? Are you... Can it be? Professor Savant? Yes, Erasmus Savant, at your service. I should not be surprised to see you so in the body of a child. It has been demonstrated that any being with a mind can play host to your transmigrations. But still, it is somewhat perplexing to think of your intellect in the guise of a mere boy. Trust me, the boyish enthusiasms of this body sometimes overwhelm the intellect. Ah, but where is your doctor? Do not tell me she has entered one of the camels. Oh, no. She is no further animal incarnations. I do not know where she is. We transmigrated into bodies that were part of a horrible shipwreck. The survivors were split into boats and a raft. I was in the boat, and I think she was on the raft. By the time we were both in the hospital and the nurse finally delivered a message to me, Petra's host body had died from the privations of the episode. I assume she is probably soundly in the laboratory, fussing over my body and concocting some new technological way of coping with the vagaries of the process. You wouldn't by chance have any of that elixir with you? I have not. My search for immortality has ended. I live long, this much can be known. But I have come to the understanding that the future is blank territory, and it cannot be said one will live forever without an understanding of what forever is. It was a fool's journey. But your elixir did send us back to the laboratory. It worked, for that purpose at least. Yes, Erasmus, it worked, as a poison is certain to do. So, Cheng, and Ben-Ben? Did not reappear at your passing, no. I am sorry to hear that. It is a price a natural philosopher pays when his research matters more than the lives of those that journey with him. Because of this, I no longer seek to poison myself nor any other. I am sorry. I've been horribly rude in my excitement at seeing you again. Let me help you get settled and we can talk more over the fire and supper. And so they settled Wei Boyong's camel, removing its pack and joining it into the tie line. After ensuring that all the animals had enough food and drink, they returned to the fire and their own supper. Your companion will not be joining us? No, he had a liquid supper earlier. I suppose you do not have a choice in traveling companions. No, I chose this one. The drinking aside, he is leading me on a great adventure. We're on our way to the Lampu Oasis, where I shall meet Bedouin and everything. It seems you have not lost your taste for adventure. One must maintain a certain daring do if one is to keep pace with Dr. Petronella's age. Oh, yes. I remember that remarkable time in the forest outside of Versailles. Your doctor made quite the highwayman. She did what? Versailles? Did you meet Petra traveling without me? No, you were there. Oh. Oh, what, man? It seems to have not happened yet for you. Uh, perhaps you had better bring me up to speed on where and when you have traveled thus far. I shall need to keep notes so that we do not confuse each other at our meetings. What are you talking about, Weber Young? 
I've met you precisely two times, once on the mountain in China, and now here in the Singhalese desert, of all the incongruous places. This is why it is necessary to truly embrace the Dharmadhatu. Your truth and mine have diverged because I have experiences in the past which lie still in your future. I can say nothing further. You must tell me your story. Start at the beginning. I seem to remember something about a battlefield and a cannonball. And so the professor told Wei Boyong of each of the adventures he had been on with Dr. Sage. It was a very long night, and the stars were beginning to fade by the time he had told of traveling into the future. But how did the professor get from a comfortable camp to a desperate shuffle alone through the desert? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of the Velveteen Band.
And now, back to our story. When we left the doctor, she was busy recalibrating and increasing the power of her transmigratory apparatus. Before she could test the efficacy of this new configuration, however, she was interrupted. Dr. Sage? Dr. Sage? You have a visitor, Dr. Sage. Abigail, lock this down. I'll go see what he wants. But Dr. Sage, you're not... Yes, what is it? I'm quite busy. Why, Petronella Sage, whatever is that you are wearing? Faraday armor. It protects from electrical burns while I work. I know of Faraday cages, but I have never heard of such a thing as Faraday armor. It is my own design, based on Faraday's concepts. It's all in my paper. I have read that paper thoroughly, and there was no mention of Faraday cages or armor or of any whatnot. Hello, Max Cunningham. The Faraday armor is detailed on page 2 of Appendix D, as a full detailing of the equipment and technique the doctor used during the course of her research. Perhaps you did not read all the appendices? I read the paper end to end, including the appendices of which there were three. Oh dear. I must have somehow lost the final three pages when I was compiling the report for your office. My apologies, Max Cunningham. I shall remedy this immediately. You said I had a visitor. Well, yes. She is waiting in the foyer. I was hesitant to bring her direct to your laboratory in case... Well, I don't know. In case you answer the door in an outrageous and wholly inappropriate state of dress. As you can see, my forethought has spared you a great deal of embarrassment. Thank you, Mix Cunningham. Of course, you know there's no reason to go out of your way to bring me this news yourself. I'm so sorry to discomfort you. I shall get dressed and greet my visitor immediately. You don't perhaps know the name of this person? It is your impertinent benefactor, who still refuses to give me her name. Ah, I see. Well then, I shall dress post-haste. Abigail, will you please see the provost out? I shall have that final appendix copied on your desk by this afternoon, Max Cunningham. I am so sorry for the inconvenience. <clears throat> Thank you again for bringing the news of our visitor. Oh, he's gone. Oh, thank you, Abigail, for covering for me. I do not always approve of your methods, Dr. Sage, but I am convinced of the veracity of your intentions. And the longer I work under him, the greater my irritation at his manner. Really, for a department head to have so little trust in the scientific process is inconscionable. Besides, sooner or later he will come upon the idea of looking at your equipment and supplies acquisition records, no matter who is paying the cost. Oh, you are correct. I shall need to consider how I report these things. Exactly. And when it is something that might bring uncomfortable questions, I shall have to look for sources outside of university systems. I'm sure the Chargé d'Affaires can help with that. That is not what I meant. We do not need to add another layer of subterfuge to our ledger. Honestly, Abigail, what do you think would happen if Cunningham were to discover the true scope of my research at this juncture? He would shut it down. Yes. Confiscate all your equipment and notes. Yes. And likely destroy it as a the ravings of a madwoman. Exactly. No man in this space and time is truly prepared to face the fact that our consciousnesses are neither male nor female, nor, for that matter, even human, but are capable of existing in all different types of bodies. Erasmus is a man. Well, yes, but Erasmus is a most singular man, and even he has struggled with that fluidity. Thus far, he has always been mad 
masculine, even if one of those forms was a baby. There is no predicting how he might react if he were to awaken in the body of a female. Point taken. Now you must go get dressed and go see who our visitor is. Does she really refuse to give a name? To be honest, I've had very little interaction with her. At the tribunal, she definitively refused to state her name. And afterwards, she gave me a calling card emblazoned with the Chargé de Fer, but it had no other name, only an address. Since that time, we've simply sent quarterly funding requests, which are granted immediately by bank transfer. How mysterious. Yes. Now help me into my corset. I had better put on a tea dress. And so the doctor dressed and went down to the foyer where she met the stranger who had come to her rescue during winter term. Dr. Sage, how good it is to see you. I trust all is going well with your research? Yes, thank you. The research is proceeding well. I'm sorry, what was your name again? I did not give you my name, but you may call me Calypso. Well, thank you again, Mix Calypso. Just Calypso, thank you. There is no need for an honorific. Uh, quite. Yes. Well, shall we repair to the tea room? Oh, yes. I could use a spot of tea. The doctor led the stranger down the hall to the formal tea room. And for those of you thinking that we now know the stranger's name, may I point out that Calypso in its original Greek means she who conceals. I submit that we know nothing. The pair were early for tea, so they had the cozy room to themselves. As they waited for the tea to steep, they chatted the sort of meaningless pleasantries that passed for courtesy in the 1890s, an art that every child learned and that the British gave credit for their empire. Be that as it may, that sort of chat is hopelessly boring, so I have chosen to skip over it until the tea is poured and they can get down to discussing the real reason for the stranger's visit. You must be wondering why I have come in person after all these months. Indeed. I wanted to see your laboratory for one thing, and for a second to assess what might be necessary for the next stage should the university approve of the third tier funding and move to surgical trials. Oh, I'm quite sure they will do that. The research is sound and the results fully replicatable. I'm not questioning the results of your research, Dr. Sage. I am simply acknowledging the fact that we may have a complication going forward. What do you mean? I have read the university funding policy, and when two branches of the same science are involved in a mode of research... Such as surgery and galvanism... They shall occupy the larger laboratory space. Uh, but McLeish's lab is much larger than mine. And you believe that the early surgical research will be carried out by the head of the surgery department? Uh, but surely it will need the top surgeon... Oh, no, you are right. They're likely to assign it to a junior surgeon for the beginning stages. Which means that your laboratory will be the larger. And that means... Sharing my space and... <gasps> oh. Exactly. Your secondary laboratory will be exposed. You do know of my secondary research. Let us not be coy, Dr. Sage. Your primary research has always been our area of interest. However, we are extremely pleased that your secondary research is also bearing fruit. Limb reattachment will be an incredible advancement for the medical sciences, but that is secondary to our true reason for funding your laboratory. I will resist any attempt to commercialize or exploit my research. You should know that. As would we. Transmigration is a precious gift, and it should not be used by the unenlightened. How do you know that word? 
It was mentioned in passing by a mutual friend. It was this person who informed our organization of your studies in the first place. Who? What friend? I am afraid I've already said too much. Suffice it to say, the Chargé du Fer will support and defend your work at all costs. Now I suggest we repair the laboratory and see what can be done to create a more effective and hidden space for that which we wish to keep sequestered from the college a while longer. Come along. Our doctor will take the stranger into her secret lab, only the second outsider to see it. Abigail became a friend and confidant afterwards. This woman claims to be an advocate and supporter. Will she remain so after seeing the cold, hard reality of transmigration spawned by electrocution? We must leave them to it and pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello listeners, Eddie Louise here, head writer for the Tales of Sage and Savant. I read a lot, and when I pick up a book I am generally looking for more than distraction. I want a story that ignites my imagination and spurs my brain into action. I want just the kind of fiction published by our sponsor, Edge Publishing. Edge publishes thought-provoking full-length novels and anthologies of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Featuring works by established authors and emerging new voices, Edge is pleased to provide quality literary entertainment in both print and pixels. Books from Edge Publishing are available at your local bookstore and online for Kindle, Kobo, Nook, iTunes, and Google Play. You can view titles and find out about future releases at www.edgewebsite.com. Edge Publishing, when you want writing to spark your imagination. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. Count on Edge Publishing for great science fiction and fantasy storytelling. And now, back to our show. When we left the doctor, she was proceeding to her laboratory with the stranger Calypso in tow. Finding a note from Abigail reading Gone Too Late Lunch, the doctor conducted the tour of the outer labs herself. As you can see, we have adequate space for cadaver storage, a proper scaffolding for the galvanization apparatus, and a good scrub sink and closet. I do think you are right. This setup is far more commodious and modern than the average junior surgeon will have. They will want to use my lab. Oh, and I had gotten used to being master in my own domains. The time has come to open the door to the sanctum where her best friend lies diminished and insensible on the slab. I must warn you, Erasmus is currently... You do not need to prevaricate with me, Doctor. How long has he been away? Too long. Two months. I don't know how much longer his body can live without... I see. We need to work on a better support apparatus. Are you a galvanist? No. What I meant was, I can place researchers on the topic of maintaining the body of an unconscious person. Perhaps someone else has developed methods we do not know about. Tell me what you are doing currently. We will leave them here as they are speaking of things we already know. It is time to face the truth of what is happening to the professor. After his meeting with Wei Boyang, the professor continued on in search of adventure with the erstwhile Englishman. Although he did see the oasis and meet the Bedouins, that was the extent of English veracity. When they arrived at the oasis, they met neither friends nor celebration. 
Instead, the Englishman was forced to undergo a trial for determining truth called the Bisha. A metal spoon was heated in a fire until it was glowing hot. Mr. Carnett was then forced to lick said spoon. The precepts of the trial claimed that a truthful person would emerge from this with an unblemished tongue. Upon finding Carnett's tongue blistered and blackened, the tribe determined that he had lied, a capital offense. Erasmus' attempts to stop the execution were in vain. Mix Carnet! Mix Carnet! In the end, the deed was done, and there was nothing a 12-year-old boy could have done about it. The rules of hospitality are strict in Bedouin tribes, and they did not threaten harm to the boy. They also did not offer succor or family. They asked him simply where he might like to go. Back to St. Louis, I guess. And so the tribe gave him food and water enough for three days and pointed him towards St. Louis. Though he began the journey on the camel that had brought him to the oasis, something went wrong on the morning of the second day. The camel was folded up in a kneeling position and would not get up no matter what Erasmus threatened or promised. Get up! You blooded son of a boxy milkmaid! Get up! We have a... Ways more to go. All right. I understand. You're tired. It is hot. Your owner is dead. But you know, my friend Petra is always telling me we can't let death be a barrier to getting on. You don't want to die out here in the sand, out in the heat. I don't want to die out here. Well, that's not wholly true. I do rather want to die, but... Dying of acute sunstroke is rather nasty. I'd rather get back to civilization and die of a good old-fashioned shooting or a well-placed knife. Help me out, old girl. Please? No matter how he cajoled, the stubborn camel would not move. At last, realizing that he risked sunstroke, the professor gave up. He shook out his pack, used the camel's water bag to thoroughly wet his turban, used his second shirt to make a small bundle with the food the Bedouins had given him, and poured a measure of water into the leather bag next to the camel. I'm sorry, but that's all you get. If I'm going to walk all the way to St. Louis, I shall need the rest. And with that, the professor began the long walk to the coast and the relative comfort of the frontier town. Unfortunately, with no previous experience in desert navigation, he is hopelessly lost. You do not need me to describe the trials of a long walk across burning sands. Suffice it to say, of all the inconveniences, the discomforts, the mortal dangers previously faced, this trek would live in the professor's memory as some of the worst hours of his life. Back in the laboratory, Abigail returns from lunch to encounter the stranger Calypso preparing to leave. Oh, hello, Abigail. Do come in. I must introduce you to Mix... to Calypso of the Chargé de Fer. Calypso, may I present my laboratory assistant, Mix Abigail Entwistle. Ah, this is the young spy Cunningham planted in your lab. Charmed, I'm sure. She is not a spy. Abigail has become a trusted ally and support to me. Yes, she reports to Cunningham, but that is as it should be in a university. She documents each aspect of my work, and when an experiment is complete, she fills out her report and presents it to the department head. When an experiment is complete? When a theory has been tested and proved? 
It would not do, given premature reports of the ongoing research. Cunningham asks if things are progressing well, and I reassure him that they are. He asks if I've seen any irregularities, and I reply, Outside the bounds of Dr. Sage's groundbreaking work? No, sir. She's most regular. Oh, this one is a firecracker such as yourself, Doctor. Well then, I'll leave you in her very capable hands. The Chargé du Fer shall be looking into the architecture and electrical infrastructure of the college. We shall find a place for your new laboratory, never fear. I shall contact you in a couple of days. Until then, Abigail, Doctor, good day. Good day. Ta then. What is this about a new, new laboratory? We can still smell the paint in this one. It's so fresh. The Chargé du Fer is worried I will be unable to continue my transmigration studies once this lab is given over for surgical trials for the galvanization work. Cunningham will never approve a second new lab for you. I realize. Calypso is intending to create a new secret study lab for us, one that Cunningham does not know about. How could she... I have no idea, but you do not have to be part of this if you do not wish. Technically, your obligation to be here ended when we handed in the galvanization studies. It wasn't part of your remit to join in the transmigrations. You need me? Well, I certainly enjoy your help and support. You need me? Without me, you might run off half-cocked. You might be rash and dangerous. You might not think through all the ramifications of your actions. I have Erasmus to keep me sorted. Erasmus is a softie and he can't always be here. Without him, you are Sherlock Holmes without his Watson. And I won't have that. I'm staying put and that is that. Thank you, Abigail. Now, if you don't mind, it has been a long day. I think I shall make an early night of it. Do you want me to sit with the professor tonight? Uh, thank you, no. I quite relish my time alone with him. Good evening, Abigail. Good night, Doctor. The Doctor changes out of her tea gown and into a wrapper, brews a cup of tea, and repairs to the bedside of her wandering friend. Let me tell you the day I have had Erasmus. Recounting her meeting with Calypso, as the sun readies for a long summer twilight, the Doctor grew melancholy, wondering what can possibly be keeping her friend. Our professor stumbles, weary and dehydrated, along the torturous dunes of the Senegalese desert. I'm sorry. I've had enough of waiting, Erasmus. I have begged, I have prodded, I have electrified, I have searched. None of it has brought you home. There is only one thing I haven't tried. And with that... The doctor climbs up onto the slab, moving carefully against the Faraday armor and the wires leading from the CRAP helmet, and kisses the professor! I love you, Erasmus Savant, and it is time for you to come home! And so, the doctor has finally declared her feelings for Erasmus. Will her kiss break the spell and bring the professor home? We'll find out in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production, brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as Narrator. 
Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael, and introducing our theme song by Unwoman. Special music in this episode was provided by The Velveteen Band. Check them out at thevelveteenband.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Episode 201, The Prodigal Professor, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or check out our website at sageandsavant.com to find the facts behind the fiction. And finally, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science.